Okay, ladies and gentlemen. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, forgive me for interrupting your conversations. Um, I am a firm believer since you all had the courtesy to get here on time, we owe you the courtesy of getting started on time. So uh, let me say thank you to all of you for coming. This is uh, a continuation of a series of lectures, presentations, discussions that we have been hosting under the umbrella of what we call our Smart Power Program. Let me just take a moment to, to try to describe what the, the nature of the Smart Power Program is. This was an effort that we launched uh, about a year and a half ago. And it was uh, our effort to try to create a, an intellectual space that's actually familiar to most Americans. Uh, this is a country that has always embodied in itself uh, a sense of realism and idealism in its foreign policy. It's just been a deep part of our national culture going back 250 years. It's a mistake to think, however, that you know the idealism part is soft and the realism part is hard. I mean, I think that's the easy sloppy intellectual way out of this thing. I think that soft power tends to be just as real, and in some cases more real, than the instruments traditionally seen of hard power. Um, you know, we didn't prevail during the Cold War because we fielded a larger military, or we spent more than our opponent or we were more aggressive in pursuing hard power goals, we prevailed because of the power of the ideas that were embedded in the American structure of values. And our founding fathers and mothers were smart enough to incorporate those values into international structures and institutions. And the world came to want those. They may have decided they didn't like us very much, but they wanted the things that we stood for. And that was real power. Now, today some people put it under the umbrella of soft power, but I think it's very real power. And we've kind of fallen out of an understanding of that in this country. Uh, we've fallen into a pattern to think that power revolves from the hard boots on the ground and the muscle you can put behind it without realizing it's far richer, deeper textured than that. So we wanted to explore what the real dimensions of American power can be should be yet again in a much more balanced and efficient exercise of power. I go through this to say that there's one person who I have been consistently reading over the last five years uh, in this domain, and that's Chet Crocker. Um, at a time when I was confused uh, about where we were heading, I thought Chet wrote with a clarity and a strength that I frankly envied. I didn't have his courage to say things at a time when he was willing to say them about where our country was going. And I will always be grateful for things that he said and did and wrote at a time when America needed to hear it. So Chet, in a way we've caught up with you today. I mean, you were, uh, you were ahead and you led us so far, and now we're going to ask you to talk with us yet again on, on this question. Uh, the, the one thing I do know about being a smart power is that it it, isn't, it doesn't get locked in concrete and set forever. You have to think about it all the time. The circumstances change and your own perceptions change. And that requires that you have people that 
serve with you as colleagues and friends and mentors and leaders who are prepared to think about these things with us and for us. And that's why we've asked Chet to be with us today. He is well known to all of you. Uh, I, my, our, our lives have, have intertwined, though never overlapped. Uh, we, he was, took his doctorate from SICE here in town, as did I. He worked here at CSIS, uh, but never when I was here. He served in government, but not in times that I had served in government. But I've had a chance to watch his, uh, his work through the years and been grateful that he would be willing to spend some time with us today. He's uh, currently the James Schlesinger uh, Chairholder for Strategic Studies at the Walsh School here in town, but is, as all of you know, very, very active in the policy community in Washington. And I know has done some extra hard thinking about the topic today. So I, let, let me get away from the stage and let me introduce, well, bring to, this, to the podium Chet Crocker with a grateful heart and say I'm very delighted. And we do have many chairs up here in the front. Please do come up and, and uh, we welcome you to join us here. Chet Crocker, why don't you start the real conversation today? Thank you. Sir. Is that working? Yes, remarkable it is. Thank you ever so much, uh, John, for those uh, excessively uh, kind and flattering remarks. It's great to be back here at CSIS, and I see a number of um, former comrades in arms from various phases of a career that's been going on for a while, back uh, from the 70s, from even earlier than that, uh, from the 80s, when uh, some of us in the Department of State were doing uh, something which one of my colleagues once called persuading unconsenting adults to perform unnatural acts. That <coughs> that, that's, of course, smart power. Um, <laughs> but I think back to CSIS days and I look around and see uh, a number of current incumbents and part members of your leadership team here, here John, uh, folks like uh, like Rick Barton, very glad that he could, he could be here. Um, I look back to my, my first immediate boss at CSIS, Mike Samuels, sitting in the back. Mike and I, with a lot of help from David Taylor, who's sitting in the front row, helped to build an African studies program here back, what year was it, Mike, 1978? Something like that. Uh, so <coughs> anyway, it's great to have all of you here. I want to do two things. Uh, today, I would like to talk a bit about the place of statecraft and diplomacy in our nation's toolkit. My operating premise is that uh, statecraft and diplomacy will return and are returning to Washington. In fact, <coughs> the President and the Secretary of Defense are kind of stealing our topic, I think, by what they're doing right now, uh, both in Annapolis and with uh, Bob Gates' uh, talk in Kansas yesterday. Um, so statecraft and diplomacy may be returning to Washington. That's obviously a nice thing. Uh, diplomacy is an ancient, an ancient art, an ancient belief system, actually. Uh, I've always had an interest in primitive belief systems and, and, and <coughs> what they evolve into. You know, I mean, alchemy became chemistry. And astrology became astronomy. Do you ever wonder what econ economics will become one day? And, and then, uh, but <coughs> But diplomacy is evolving too, and we have to get better at that. 
At times, people ask questions about diplomacy. What is it becoming? Second, I want to say a word about what the next president might do in terms of applying some of the ideas of smart, of smart power or smart statecraft, which is a term I, I sort of prefer. My basic thesis is that our nation is experiencing a diplomacy deficit. But the corollary is that <clears throat> this is an American problem. It's a bipartisan problem. It's a problem that goes beyond elected politicians to thought leaders, uh, to the commentariat, to cable TV hosts, to ordinary folks who get their foreign news from Jay Leno. Um, it's, it's a problem exemplified, perhaps, by the first term of this administration. But it would be a simplistic and foolish exercise to say that we just should be engaging in bush bashing. That doesn't really – this is an American cultural and intellectual challenge, not simply a challenge for uh, an administration. And the point is that we used to do it. We used to be pretty good at this. Uh, there was a time – I think of the opening to China. I think of the, uh, the Kissinger shuttles that brought us to the disengagement on the Golan. I think of uh, Jimmy Carter and the Camp David. I think more recently of the end of the Cold War period and how several administrations uh, took advantage of the geopolitical transformations to build peace in Central America, in Southern Africa, in Southeast Asia. Uh, one thinks of German unification. One thinks of the expansion of NATO and the placing of Germany in NATO. What an extraordinary accomplishment that actually was. Um, I think of the Madrid phase of the Middle East peace process. Uh, more recently, I think of what we're doing on the Korean Peninsula as an example. Um, but since the 1990s, the U.S. has generally been more wary, maybe more cautious, about launching major new proposals for, for global order, for building new international institutions, for mounting sustained diplomatic uh, campaigns or mediation initiatives capable of transforming the politics of an entire region. In other words, we've shied away from what I would call statecraft. And <clears throat> One reason for that is our profound misunderstanding of what it is, in, in, my, in my own view. Statecraft means pulling together <clears throat> our wits and our wallets and our muscle to create realistic strategies and then to put them into, into motion through agile diplomacy. It does not, as, as John has said, dispense with hard power. It uses hard power intelligently, recognizing its potential as well as its limits. Contrary to popular misconception, diplomacy is not about making nice. It's not about exchanging happy talk. It's not about offering concessions in a vacuum. It's about being the transmission belt to put strategy into action. Now, how did we reach the point – I mean, I don't need to tell this audience about all these things – but how did we reach the point where our country needs schooling in such basic precepts as I am referring to now? For much of the post-9-11 period in the first place, I think we've persuaded ourselves that everything changed on 9-11 and that we were returning to a kind of us-versus-them bipolar situation where foreign policy was more of a contact sport, if you like, in which the primary uh, instruments are military and the only real decider is right here in Washington. So that's one reason why we have to remind ourselves about these things. The second reason is that there's been a long-standing American unease with diplomacy and with diplomats. After all, it's in this country that we think of people say diplomats are people who wear pinstripes. <coughs> I don't know if that's okay. People who hold teacups in a certain way. People who have to explain what they do and why they spend the taxpayers' money. I don't know too many countries where that's true apart from our own. 
but it certainly is an American, an American problem. Um, our society has an uneasy relationship with the demands of statecraft. What are those demands? We have to be able to cooperate with other people for common purposes. And if we do so, we can convert that energy into building institutions. We know that because we've done it. Statecraft requires a capacity to talk to domestic audiences and foreign audiences at the same time. Not just to get up there on the State Department podium and pound on the podium for domestic consumption. It requires an ability to frame issues in a way that serves the political requirements of other leaders as well as ourselves. A readiness on occasion to deal with ugly regimes and to engage with troublesome adversaries while making clear to them that that does not confer legitimacy on them, but that we're not thereby giving them gifts or concessions. The term has been used to apply to this sort of thinking, constructive engagement. I've heard that phrase someplace. It is widely used around the world when we're doing it right. It's not a gift. It's a way of complicating the mind of other people. It's a way of forcing them to recognize that the ball is in their court. It's by, about asking them to answer questions they'd rather not have to deal with. Statecraft requires the courage to explain to domestic audiences that the laws of gravity affect us too, affect the United States too, even if we are a rather uniquely empowered nation. Statecraft requires that we have policymakers who read books about the history and the culture of other places. The point I'm making here is that American political culture, as well as our remarkable assets of economic and military power, have a tended to blind us to these very basic truths that I'm talking about here with you today. So we're, we're inclined to overestimate the reach of boots on the ground hard power and, and, and to underestimate the risk and the perverse and unintended consequences of using it in a vacuum without the other kinds of power that we need. The third reason why we need to have this discourse is because I think our strategic military culture overlooks the nexus between military and political dimensions of policy. American leaders over our history, and this is not new, and it's not a partisan problem, have repeatedly been surprised by the challenge of translating battlefield success into positive political outcomes. It's a problem. It's not easy to do it. It requires statecraft. Our strategic imagination too often fails to connect the dots, is what I'm saying. So what do we do? As you've guessed by now, I believe that we suffer the effects of a statecraft and diplomacy deficit that is both long-standing and profound. The pendulum is swinging back somewhat. The intolerably high cost of daredevil, coercive unilateralism is, I think, widely recognized, and the potential benefits of creatively engaging in the smart uses of our power are visible now for all to see. I think we should take heart from the important work of the CSIS Smart Power Commission, whose very name suggests that we need to steer clear of the alternative. <laughs> um, <coughs> the essence of your message, John, if I may say so, in your Smart Power Commission report is, to my mind, the notion that <coughs> while we must maintain a strong military, we must, and I quote, also invest heavily in alliances, in partnerships, and institutions at all levels 
to expand American influence and establish the legitimacy of American action. That says it all. It says a lot about where we are today that this distinguished bipartisan group that you assembled here at CSIS on the need to establish or restore U.S. legitimacy had to even do that, but you've done it, and it's a good thing. It says a lot also when the Secretary of Defense, Bob Gates, travels to Kansas, as he did yesterday, to make a major appeal for a huge increase in the civilian instruments of statecraft. Isn't it delicious? Isn't it wonderful to watch, to watch that happen? The pendulum has a way of, of swinging, doesn't it? By which he means to invest in our diplomacy, in our State Department, in our Foreign Service, in our commu strategic communications capability, in our foreign assistance programs, and our civilian tools of reconstruction and development. There is a growing consensus here. There's no question about it. Let me now sketch out briefly some ideas about what will be challenges that, that uh, might uh, appear on the desk of the next administration, and if it is empowered with smart power and smart statecraft people, what they would do with that knowledge. In my view, the most central challenge for American statecraft for the next administration is how to manage the transition away from a nearly exclusive focus on countering terrorism and toward a broadened agenda of global leadership. I say that knowing that I'm in the room here with Yona Alexander, who, uh, who founded terrorism studies here at, at CSIS in the 1970s and has been doing it ever since, and it's a great field, and we admire you for it. But there is a world beyond terrorism. Um, and, and so we have to, what I'm suggesting is that while we fight this counterterrorism struggle, we have to do some other things too. And, and so uh, that's, that's number one on my, on my list. At presently, present, we describe ourselves as being as being at war uh, in a so-called global war on terrorism. This mantra has become the central strategic premise of our times. We have to fight and win this struggle, make no mistake. But the decision to declare war on them, to, to elevate these bands of jihadis into the functional equivalent of the USSR, was a discretionary choice. And I would argue a strategic blunder. Our counterterrorism uh, policies can be relabeled, redefined, restructured, conducted differently, conducted better, conducted less kinetically, conducted according to changing conditions and, and different regions of the world, and we've got to do it right. But the GWOT, the Global War on Terrorism, must not remain the central doctrine of American foreign policy. Unless that changes, in my own view, we will remain in a defensive posture incapable of mounting fresh initiatives, unable to reinvigorate existing institutions and partnerships or to build new ones, and lacking the leverage to kickstart new discussions with new partners and not having the political capital at home and abroad to back our vision with tangible resources. So what I'm really suggesting here is that we've got to stop digging the hole that we're in. We've got to stop creating the impression that we have only one thing on our minds and that we don't care if that one thing pollutes other relationships, and stop handing leverage to others who may see benefit in our being tied down militarily in a war that we, we ourselves define as long, if not endless. We also face the challenge of dealing with the, the, the burden of two major counterinsurgency wars, obviously in Afghanistan and Iraq. We have to bring these <coughs> to a successful or at least tolerable conclusion. And that's a tall order. These undertakings, if you just think about it, 
take up a huge amount of our existing diplomatic energy, tangible resources, political capital. Just think about what these two wars that we are now in, and we have to get them right, and we have to conclude them properly, what they do to the rest of our foreign policy. It means managing the critically important alliance with an unstable Pakistan. It means isolating, punishing, or engaging in some combination Syria and Iran for their behavior <coughs> in Iraq and Lebanon and the Palestinian lands. It means mobilizing Sunni coalitions against an Iranian regime that is the principal beneficiary of our own decision to go into Iraq. And it means attracting Sunni Arab support by generating movement in the long-stalled <coughs> Israel-Palestine peace process. <coughs> As we are now seeing in Annapolis, we, we of course all wish the events in Annapolis well. We all wish to see that there be some, some success, some tangible success, some follow-through coming out of Annapolis. Um, but it's, um, <coughs> it's a hugely ambitious thing to do at this late stage in the administration, and we are doing it from a hole. We are digging ourselves out of a hole. There is, I think, a larger question for us and for the next administration as it confronts these sets of issues. Do we continue to place the Middle East at the epicenter of American foreign policy? It is, to be sure, the world's most geopolitically sensitive region. It's the region where a civil war within Islam is playing out. It's the region where the jihadist struggle against us uh, is, is based. But the smart statesman or smart stateswoman is entitled to ask himself or herself, is there any possibility of not only changing the way we manage our Middle Eastern policies, but also the extent to which we allow them to absorb such a dominant proportion of our strategic resources and our political capital. Now the next priority for <coughs> the smart statesman derives from the first. It revolves around how we define ourselves and how we define our overall global strategic uh, situation. What kind of a leader do we want to be? Are we a wartime leader? Are we the world's leading peacemaker? Are we a fearful nation, a confident nation? These are many of the things that were brought out in the Smart Power Commission report, and I won't repeat them all here. But it does seem to me that we have some fundamental questions to ask about what kind of a, what vision do we have for ourselves? What, what kind of a country do we wish to be? If, Mr. Chairman, as your Smart Power Commission proposes, that the U.S. should return to conducting a truly global policy, what should be its focus? Your commission answers the question that I've just posed as follows. We need an American commitment to providing for the global good. What does that mean? It means providing the things that people and governments want but cannot obtain without American leadership. And I, I salute that formula. I think it's a great formula. We should make the kind of investments identified in your report. But smart statecraft requires choices. It requires a rigorous sense of timing. It matters where and when and how we allocate our finite capital, and we've got to get the sequence right, bearing in mind that there are lots of dynamics unfolding beyond our shores, and not all of them are benign. We need a solid grasp of our real strategic situation, and I'm going to reiterate here what I consider to be some sobering points about that strategic situation. The next administration will not start with a blank slate. It cannot come into office and assume that, okay, well, we got rid of those guys, <laughs> whoever they were. Um, we have some real issues out there that we cannot ignore. 
The next administration inherits major military burdens with sharply negative effects on American freedom of maneuver. No question about that. You know, the, the ground forces may not be broken, but they certainly are not in great shape from the standpoint of additional commitments and undertakings. It will inherit a delicate and demanding diplomatic engagement over North Korea. It will inherit some after effects of Annapolis and the Middle East peace process or what's left of it after the, 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 next, the next 12 months. It will inherit the likelihood of ongoing engagement over issues such as Iranian nuclear matters or the, the Sudanese civil war or the unfinished business in the Balkans. Beyond that, it will inherit an increasingly apparent shift of power away from governments everywhere and towards the market economy and civil society institutions so that governments themselves, in fact, can do less by themselves than they used to be able to do. It will inherit a parallel shift of power toward the big developing states of Asia, toward the major producers of fuel and mineral resources, and toward the owners of large liquid investment pools and foreign exchange reserves. It will inherit a world system whose leading international institutions are in poor health, ill-suited to many current demands, and often circumvented or ignored. A system, in other words, that does not work as well as it should, but that might respond to creative leadership. I think these considerations I've laid out for you argue for what I might call sobriety. They argue against rolling out bold, comprehensive, sweeping visions in which we're going to cross any river and climb any mountain. Um, we are frankly not well placed to take up the mantle of leadership on some of the global issues I am talking about. I speak in total frankness about this. I, I think we're not well suited to take on the leadership role on some of the values agenda related to democracy promotion and the rule of law for obvious reasons. We're not well suited to take on the intricate multilateral diplomacy of UN reform. In a sense, there are some issues perhaps on which the soup is too hot to be eaten quickly after the experience of the last few years. Instead, I believe the next administration should start with a systematic review of these Middle East legacies. The review would shed light, for example, on whether there is potential for sustained movement on Israel-Palestine, whether there is potential for a serious diplomatic initiative towards Iran. The fruits of this exercise would be one basis for intensified allied consultations with key allies and major powers. The other basis would be our own internal review of which global and regional challenges are most likely to respond to an American lead. One could use the CSIS report as a starting place. The concept of investing in the global good is a great idea, but it needs to be unpacked, in my opinion, and cherry-picked with great care and selectivity. I would, for one, not propose an American initiative for reform of the global financial institutions. I would not propose that the United States in its first year of a new administration take on UN Security Council reform. <laughs> once, again, <laughs> once again, the soup may be too hot and our prospects for developing traction too murky. Instead, I think we should concentrate on sectors where we have a decisive or indispensable contribution to make that everybody understands and where we know there are others who would like to see some action by us. 
My short list would include two closely related issues, climate change and energy security. The environment, I suspect, will be a primary security challenge in this century, just as totalitarian aggression and <coughs> colonial domination and racism were in the previous century. As we contemplate high-cost oil in a carbon-constrained economy, we must recognize the risks associated as well with the resulting boom in civilian nuclear power plant construction. These two phenomena provide an imperative for American leadership in creating a broad-based post-Kyoto regime on carbon emissions and climate change generally, and updating secondly, if not replacing, the non-proliferation regime. There are some prominent Americans, this is not original with me, who are already calling for steps towards the international control of the nuclear fuel cycle, a critical step toward addressing the question of WMD proliferation. Both these agenda items would have to be based somehow in a UN framework to assure legitimacy and broad buy-in, but would in practice be nurtured to fruition amongst key negotiating partners. Creative initiatives in these fields have many things to recommend them, it seems to me, to the United States. And I would also suggest that we get the Law of the Sea Treaty ratified. That would be in the same category. Just think for a moment what these things would do if we could get them right. We would be addressing key issues of regional and global security, demonstrating an appropriate use of multilateral fora. They would illustrate America's readiness to take decisions on critically important issues where up to now we have been outliers, unwilling to accept responsibility or even to confirm our previous commitments. For precisely that reason, they would give us potential leverage. You know, when you've been a rogue or an outlier and you go talk to other people and you say to, you, say to them, well, you know, <clears throat> guess what? I could actually pull up my socks. <laughs> I could actually cooperate. I could actually do some things. I could come towards your agenda. It actually gives you leverage. And leverage is what we need because we've got to stop digging the hole that we're in. If some momentum develops on some of these issues that I'm talking about, it would obviously give us the possibility to address other issues of considerable significance to us, such as global trade expansion, Middle East peace, and so forth. I could go on and on here, John, giving examples of what smart power and smart statecraft could do. Um, lesser examples, greater examples. Uh, I could give you a few teasers, but uh, we don't have all day. But I'll just, just to whet uh, the appetite, we did smart statecraft, we the U.S., when we recognize that the way to eliminate some of the resistance to getting boots on the ground in Darfur was to work on the Chinese. When that idea was first surfaced in Washington, people said, what? They're the problem. To which the response is, yeah, that's right. They're the problem. So let them, let's make them the solution. So we go to work on the Chinese, and we push on the Chinese, and we mobilize Andrew Natsios, we mobilize <coughs> your African Studies program and your post-conflict reconstruction program. We mobilize lots of different people. Mia Farrow goes on a walk across the Chadian Desert. That didn't hurt. And, and began talking about the Olympics. And before you know it, the Chinese were saying, hey, you know, maybe, maybe we should become part of the solution in Darfur. Now, the jury is out. I'm not suggesting we've solved Darfur. But we'll never solve it without the Chinese. You've got to find a way to give people who are the problem a road, a door they can walk through to become part of the solution. I'll give another example. We were wise, in my view, to stand back in the early 1990s and provide some quiet support 
to the leadership of the Italian Catholic lay organization known as Sant'Egidio, which took the role of the lead peacemaker in Mozambique in the early 90s and actually brought that country to peace in the 1992 General, uh, General Peace Agreement. Here was an NGO that understood both its capacity and its limits. A lot of NGOs understand their capacity. Not all NGOs understand their limits, but this was one that did. And it worked very closely with leading powers in neighboring states in a layered, complex mediation. Washington was part of that story, a proud part, but a very low-profile part. It didn't brag about it. It didn't carry on about it. It just did it. More recently, in more recent years, the U.S. has also played a quiet, backstopping role in support of European official and non-governmental peacemaking efforts in Indonesia and Sri Lanka. We have with us in this room today a smart power statesman named Luigi Ainaudi, who did the same kind of thing, working in a multinational context to resolve the Peru-Ecuador conflict, and doing it based in a long-standing diplomatic context that had been on the shelf for 30, 40, 50 years and, and re revitalizing it and mobilizing our own bureaucratic resources as well as working intimately with our key negotiating partners in that, in that important process. One more example. We used a full array of capabilities to bring Colonel Gaddafi in from the cold in 2003 and 4. We used a special relationship with the UK. We used the Lockerbie settlement and the, the judgments that were hanging over Gaddafi in the, in the courts in Europe. We used the conditional engagement or constructive engagement offers that we made to do with diplomatic normalization, removing sanctions under certain conditions. We used the prospect of Western investment in Libya's vast oil reserves. We used the stick of, of toughened WMD measures that might be put in place and the handy example of coercion in Iraq. This was really quite an interesting example of smart power at work. We almost blew it after the breakthrough by not following it up adequately, but I think it's on the track now. So that's, that's an example. I want to say a final word or two about the U.S. government's capability to do smart statecraft. People often raise the question of whether the U.S. government is capable of acting and thinking and behaving strategically, whether it's capable of being coherent and being organized. You know, studies of the, how the executive branch is organized to do foreign policy could fill every bookshelf in the CSIS library. You, you have quite a big library these days, I think, John, but th this would take up half of it. Some 32 years ago, I participated in the so-called Murphy Commission review of how the government's organized for foreign policy. It was a seven-volume report. Your Smart Power Commission has a few things to say on the subject of structure and organization. And you've also sponsored the recent Embassy, Embassy of the Future project, which talks a lot about um, how we are represented ab abroad and, and what kind of people we need to send there, what kind of embassies, and so on. Such reviews are important. And they happen more frequently when things don't seem to be going very well. But let's take the question of public diplomacy. Well, I think we're all aware of the low esteem in which the U.S. is held in many countries today. I mean, the, the poll numbers are horrific, just horrific, if you look around at different uh, regions, different parts of the world. We've lost our credibility on the values agenda. 
Many countries hesitate to associate with us because we have not been investing in our soft power or our political power or diplomatic power. I have no doubt, for example, that the elimination of USIA was a strategic mistake. <coughs> but foreign opinion is most influenced not by what we say we are doing, no matter how skillful we are in packaging that message. It is most influenced by what we are seen to be doing, by what we are sometimes caught doing, and by what we are actually doing, which are three different things. If we don't get the third right, the first two, forget it, you know. <coughs> this, of course, is precisely why we're seeing the events take place in Annapolis now, <coughs> right? Think about it. A few years ago, it was fashionable to argue that the U.S. would never be liked because it runs against human nature to like a superpower hegemon. Things would be okay if we're just sufficiently feared, right? I don't know. I think it would be a good thing if we were once again respected for being competent. So that, and I, I think a lot of people would have a higher estimation of the United States if they could respect what we're doing in terms of its competence. So, you know, the jury's out. <coughs> the jury's out on a lot of current activities and initiatives. We'll see, but competence does count for something. Let me take another example that's dear to the heart of some people in this room, myself included, and that includes Sayoni, my wife, sitting in the third row. CSIS has been much in the forefront of talking about and thinking about how we manage interventions and how we think about post-conflict reconstruction and nation building and state building. You've done some path-breaking work in this field defining the various tasks that are involved in the war to peace transition in places such as Kosovo and East Timor and Haiti and Afghanistan and, and Sudan and others. <coughs> You've done good stuff. I should know because my daughter Sheba and her fiancé Millen used to work in that program, in Rick's program. If we apply smart statecraft to this field of activity, what would it look like? Sometimes people talk about creating a civilian capacity inside the U.S. government for sustained nation building and transitional administration, a capacity to operate in zones of turbulence that is parallel to what the Defense Department does. The Defense Department knows how to operate in zones of turbulence. Are civilian agencies perhaps uh, less so, but learning and being dragged into those roles? I personally have some questions about whether the State Department itself should be the place where we create the modern equivalent of a colonial office. I have some questions about that. I was um, <coughs> getting my morning news take in the shower listening to uh, National Public Radio the other day, and um, I used to call that radio Havana, but now I listen to it with much, much more, with much, with much more, uh, <laughs> much more adherence and, and fascination than perhaps I used to. Either they've changed or I've changed. I don't know which. Anyway, they were they were interviewing a couple of captains and, and majors south of Baghdad about how it was going in the surge, and the answer was surge is going great militarily. Everything's we're making a lot of headway, but there's a certain problem: uh, the, the sewers don't work. Where is the State Department, said the captain to the interviewer. Well, the last time I checked the State Department organizational chart, there wasn't a Department of Sewage. <laughs> and I'm not sure I really want to see a Department of Sewage created in the State Department. So I, I have a question about how we structure all this. But it's obvious that we need to structure it somehow. Smart statecraft is a very broad field. It cannot be confined to staffing up provincial reconstruction teams 
running counter-narcotics programs, running prison systems, maintaining power plants, and fixing the sewage. There's a lot more to smart power than those things. But there is no doubt that there is a crying need for a central locus of integration and coordination, a clearinghouse, a focal point for all these various civilian capabilities and tools, official and non-official, and a place where the armed services can connect and do joint planning with. That locus for joint effort and oversight has got to be in the State Department, our lead foreign affairs agency, <coughs> and the one that's best place to provide that kind of guidance and, and leadership. Well, I think this gives you a sense of a few of my deeply held convictions. Um, <clears throat> I believe we're still capable of doing it, still capable of smart power and smart statecraft. We need a better sense of the laws of gravity, a clearer sense of what can be accomplished in cooperation with others. I now want to hear about a few of your strongly held convictions. So I'll stop there, John, and we'll take it back. I, uh, I asked Chet to provoke us, and he has. And I, this is uh, <laughs> really terrific. Uh, I w I'm going to begin uh, the questioning period, but we really are going to bring all of you in. The quality of this is going to very much depend on you. Let, let me pull out two things that you said, Chet, and put them side by side. They were separated by about 10 minutes in your speech, but I think that they, they need to be put next to each other, and then I want to ask you. A question. You said, you know, the, the various things that smart statescraft needs to be, and one of the most important, very few people have focused on, and that is the capacity to say the same thing domestically that you say internationally. And, you know, we don't. Now, I want to contrast that with a, a rhetoric that's a, developed in our politics, where for domestic reasons, we're projecting a, a posture internationally, where it's either you're with us or you're against us. Or um, they need—they know what they need to do. We don't need to talk to them. Hmm. Okay, so we're we're getting a dynamic where I think we're saying those things because our domestic politics gives us an imperative to say it. But it doesn't sound the same thing internationally as it does when we say it here. So how do we get at this? I mean, it's really about a pathology in our politics domestically that we've made these, this very sloganeering kind of foreign policy a mantra of leadership domestically. What would you do about that? Well, it's a real dilemma. It seems to me that in a way what we need is uh, American leaders who can speak truth to power and powers in the media, and it's with the grassroots, we need some candor. We need an ability of leaders to feel strong enough to actually tell the truth. And I, I, I kept using the word that the laws of gravity you know, affect us too. I think it'd be a wonderful thing if, 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 we, if we had leaders who felt self-confident. It's been a long time since we had a self-confident leader in the very top, the very top of our system. A leader who's prepared to be inarticulate because he knows that that's what the American people would like to hear, but also prepared to say what he thinks about the military-industrial complex or about whatever it is. So part of this is about leadership, and it cannot be, it cannot be uh, reformed, I don't believe, John, without, without leadership that's prepared to, to be that candid and that direct. 
I, I'm looking around the room here. I, I, I think I saw Don Oberdorfer um, join us at one point. Hi, Don. And Don taught me about the State Department Press Corps. And, and you know, he, it was early on in my experience in the State Department, and I was, I was facing questions about a policy review that was quite sensitive at the time. And um, a lot of folks were talking about some leaked documents, and, and I knew I was in for a tough time with, with, with the media when Don phoned and said, well, I have the story. I want to hear your version of the story. If you won't tell me your version of the story, I'm going to go to print anyway. Uh, so maybe we should talk. <laughs> uh, maybe, maybe we should talk. And I, I thought about that for a minute and said, well, you know, he has all the cards, so maybe I better talk to him. <laughs> um, and over time, you know, one gets trained in working with the press and talking to the press and knowing when you can say things on record, off record, on background, or whatever. But if you view the press as simply a way to be sure you get the right soundbite on Fox News, I mean, that's a pathetic, that, that's bankrupt. That's a pathetic excuse for, for leadership. It's not leadership. It's just pandering. And David Brooks said it right in a column not too long ago, and I've, I've quoted him often. There's just not enough of a priority in, in our politics on being able to speak candidly. Mm -hmm. can, can I uh, take, turn this about 90 degrees sideways and ask it from a slightly different direction? When we, when we were in the middle of our Smart Power Commission, Terry Todman, one of the great diplomats, but one of the, he, he said something that really resonated with me. He said, how do we expect people in the world to respect us if we don't like each other, speaking about America? And I'm wondering if that isn't a different dimension on this problem. We clearly, uh, in our political life, are deeply divided as a nation, and we don't like the vision that the other side holds up. How can we be a smart power if that competition, that aggressive negative competition, tends to dominate the image that we project internationally? Well, you're, you're asking a question that goes to the heart of what's going on in Congress and, and, and uh, the role of Congress in foreign policy, the broken branch, uh, which has been written about so eloquently recently. Um, again, I, I have to believe that most Americans, if they're newspaper reading people at all would, would like to see a politics and a discourse on the Hill that was not the way you just described it. Um, but it, it's going to require leadership that's capable of making that point and getting that message across. And leadership not just in one office or one building. It's going to have to be leadership in, in various places. I think it's, it's possible getting past the election that you'll see some, some statesmen and stateswomen emerge. But, um, uh, right now, all the incentive structure seems to point towards a kind of polarizing of, of foreign policy debate, um, which, <coughs> which leads to people playing to, playing to their base and playing to, uh, playing to worst instincts and, and worst casing each other. Um, we had a discussion at Georgetown University last night that was very revealing in this regard. There was a, the question was raised, how would you create an alternative to the current national security strategy, which says that our number one role in life should be to remain the dominant hegemonic power in the world. So how would you create the alternative to that? How would you, how would you describe the alternative to that? Is it that we no longer want to be the dominant power in the world? That's the lead, right? <laughs> so you can imagine what would happen inside the Beltway if um, a presidential candidate said, my platform is to 
no longer be the dominant international power <laughs> in the world today. The, the problem is that uh, we, we just need to elevate the discourse. We need to get Jay Leno in the room, John. <laughs> <laughs> Colleagues, I invite you, please, and we do have microphones. I would ask you as you're thinking your questions, please raise your hand and then someone has to begin. Please, right, right, yes, please put your hand up and then she'll hand you the microphone. Would you please identify yourself so we know? Okay. I'm sorry that uh, I raised my hand. No. I <laughs> We're delighted. <laughs> my name is Young WTO, Iowa State University. I came a long way to attend this uh, session because I had some other functions in town and I was excited to hear uh, Dr. Popo, your, uh, I, you know, I know you through reading and uh, some of the books and the pamphlets. But I have two questions, if I may address, as a kind of a political science uh, teacher uh, for long years. Uh, you know, uh, like Clausewitz uh, used to say, war is the extension of diplomacy by other means. Now, I wonder how smart power and the smart statements that you are advocating here are related to that issue. I mean, uh, are they? I think I hear two questions there. Uh, the, the first question is whether what we're talking about here has much to do with Clausewitz. I think he, I think he would recognize a lot of what we're talking about. Um, the point about military power that to me is the starting place is to recognize that military power can create opportunity. It can create windows of opportunity to get things done. It can create a brief moment in which you can then try to accomplish political objectives. But military power by itself, uh, does pure coercion does not create a political result. And I, I think Clausewitz would understand that immediately. He would also understand <coughs> that there's a need for selectivity. There's a need for timing. There's a need for sequencing. Timing is everything in war. Timing is everything in football. Timing is everything in romance. Timing is everything in diplomacy. I think he'd understand that too. And he would agree with it. As I, as I mentioned in my talk, I, I, I think there's going to be a very important role for, for cherry-picking some of the very good ideas in your smart power report by the next administration. They can't possibly do it all. 
So the, the strategic question which Clausewitz would ask is, okay, of all these opportunities, threats, challenges, and so on, where do I invest? How much capital do I have? How much leverage do I have? And how do I create some more? Now, on North Korea, I tried to salute, and I, I actually said a number of complimentary things about the performance of the last seven years in this town. Uh, they were obviously surrounded by some other things, uh, but uh, North Korea is a very interesting case. I, I think we use smart power in the North Korean case once we recognize the importance of embedding our concerns in a six-power process. Once we recognize that even though we couldn't control it, it was probably the best way we were going to address that issue and, and relate to the North Korean challenge. Even though we recognize that in some ways the Chinese control that process, the Chinese have a lot of the leverage. We're not really in the driver's seat in this process. The Chinese are sustaining that regime, as are the South Koreans to some extent. So we're not really totally in the driver's seat, but not to have gone down the six-power road would have been folly. And I think we recognize that, and I think credit should be given for what we've accomplished. Ted, let me ask you, um, you, you spoke you spoke about the need to institutionalize structure, and yet the institutions that we want to embrace are pretty broken. Where, where would you start? Where would an American diplomacy begin if what we want to do is to build better institutions but know that we're basically going to have to reform the ones we've got? I was hoping you'd ask that question, John. Um, I don't think we start by reforming in the sense of charter reform of the United Nations. I think that's, that's a bridge too far, and as I, as I said, using other terminology, the soup is too hot. It's been tried recently. It crashed and burned. There's too many reasons why Security Council reform, for example, just can't work right away. I also think we need to acquire some momentum, some leverage, and begin by doing something on a, on a specific set of issues. So rather than taking on the entire UN system, my suggestion is we take on some specific issues. One of them would be the Law of the Sea Treaty, which is UN-based, and, and everybody's already signed up to it, and, and the administration wants it, and, and apparently it's, it's got bipartisan support in the Hill. It has one Senate hold on it or something. We should be able to break that hold and get the darn thing signed. That would send a signal internationally that there, whatever else you may say about American debates, it is possible sometimes for Americans to agree on something important and to do something important. You could proceed from there to look at, uh, to look at uh, climate change and to look at the nonproliferation regime. I recognize that those are both very ambitious, but if you could make headway on them and embed that headway in, a, in the UN framework, it would send a signal, not that we're trying to change the entire system, but that we see the possibility of working in sector by sector, working on creating some facts, creating some facts on the ground. Yes, Joe, please. Back channel, or, or what do we do? Uh, your thoughts? Well, Iran, of course, uh, Joe, in many ways, is, <coughs> is, the, is the test case for this way of thinking. It's a test case for some, some version of engagement strategy. Uh, but you can do engagement while you do containment at, at the same time, I believe. Um, my starting place is to underscore once again that 
we are operating on a defense basis. We're playing defense. We're playing catch-up because the Iranians are in a position today that is stronger than it was, say, five or six years ago. And it's a stronger position because of what we have done. So we have to recognize that we've got to sort of reestablish some leverage before we can address Iran. I wouldn't start tomorrow is what I'm saying. <coughs> a new administration will have new sources of credibility and leverage of its own and will be able to conduct policy reviews, which are often a good way to send signals. So I, I'm not suggesting that maybe in the final six months of this administration that, that President Bush invites the Iranians to Annapolis. I, I, don't, I don't think that necessarily is the way to go. Um, but an engagement strategy includes the following ingredients and I think could be done at the right time with Iran. First, it means setting out a roadmap. Laying out a roadmap for the Iranians that would include the things that we know we care deeply about, prioritize. But asking them and telling them that if we're going to have a discussion, they have to put their issues on that roadmap as well. And there's no preconditions. We can't expect to engage with the Iranians if we tell them what they can't talk about. Or we tell them we're only going to talk about A and B, but we're not going to talk about D, E, F, and G. That's not the way you do diplomacy. All these things are going to have to be linked together in some fashion. Um, so in, in, in my judgment, the nuclear issue with Iran, the question of Iranian behavior in Lebanon, Iranian behavior in the Middle East peace process, Iranian behavior in Iraq, uh, these questions can all be discussed. I thought Tony Zinni had it right when he talked to your group not too long ago when he said that we know we can probably deter Iran if we have to, but let's see if we don't have to. Let's see if we can't deal with the problem at another level. And, and actually, actually, if you recognize what the Iranians are after, <coughs> it is probably status. It is probably respect. It is probably a key role in their region and the recognition of their role uh, rather than owning the weapons themselves and being able to use the weapons themselves. We face a, a, a nuclear nightmare in the Persian Gulf region. It's out of control. It's why I stressed, rather than stressing Iran, Joe, it's why I stressed a replacement for the nonproliferation regime. We've got to get there. We've got to get the international nuclear fuel cycle under some kind of international control. And we have the cards to play because we're one, one of the three states that is an NPT depository state. We have that possibility. We could work with the Brits and the Russians to bring that into fruition, to get some kind of a dialogue going internationally. They would say, look, we're prepared to do the things under Article 6 that we were supposed to do and never have. We're prepared to talk about that, but obviously not until we control your nukes. <laughs> Vera McConnell? Question. The microphone's coming. Vera McConnell from Northern Command. Uh, seems to me foreign policy is not always foreign. I wonder if you could apply some of your principles or some of your comments to... Uh, Relations with the 54 independent countries we call states and territories. Uh, what about state and local? What about the private sector? What about uh, those parts of American society? How would you define diplomacy with them? That's a big challenge. I, I think where I would start, Bear, is by making the point that we, we our government, have less and less control over less and less ability to regulate 
what our society does. And that, as, as a freedom-loving American, I'm not unhappy about that. I mean, there's lots of things that take place spontaneously in our non-governmental sector, in the civic sector, and so forth. And, and really, this is a source of smart power. If we could figure out a good way for our federal system not, not to mobilize and deploy, but to interface with all the rich institutional capacities that we have in our country. Our country is a nation of problem solvers. Our government may not be, but our country is. And we, we, we should be able to find ways to, to get in there and, and, and to bring the state and local dimensions, to bring the non-governmental dimensions into, into focus. Not as a direct instrument of foreign policy controlled by Secretary Rice or whoever, but as, as part of what we represent to the world. That's just the beginning of an answer. I'm going to think about some more. It's a good question. Welcome back, please. Right beside you. Constance uh, Ikoku, a reporter from Nigeria. Uh, the U.S. Uh, government has uh, tried to expand military influence in Africa by uh, setting up AFRICOM. And I think it's caused quite a lot of problems because many African countries have expressed uh, reservations about militarizing the continent. My question is, do you see this as causing problems for the U.S. government in the future, damaging relations in a continent where it's trying to win support? And how would you advise you know, to go about this particular issue? The question concerns the uh, standing up recently, I think it was October 1, wasn't it, formally, of AFRICOM, the new Africa Command, which is for the next year or so going to be co-located with UCOM in Stuttgart, but is destined to become at some point um, a, f a freestanding independent uh, combatant command like the other regional commands. My short take on your question is that th this is an idea that's long overdue. I am delighted to see us creating an Africa Command. I just wish we did it competently. To go back to that, uh, that adverb I used uh, previously, um, as you know at the present time, Africa which is kind of odd, is spoken for by three distinct military commands. It makes no sense at all. It, it actually inhibits you know, intelligent, smart policy making in the executive branch. So having an Africa command is fine. Um, it would help if the mission that is supposed to be attached to Africa command was described in ways that our African friends and partners could have confidence in and could clearly understand. Unfortunately, the rolling out of Africa Command has been a little sloppy. It's, it, we've had various voices. Uh, some people have drawn the conclusion that we're doing this to fight terrorists all across the Sahel or the Sahara. Others have concluded that we're doing it because the Chinese are coming and grabbing all of our oil supplies. And, and you know, unfortunately, I think some African leaders, military and political, have concluded that this is part of a, an effort to mobilize Africa for the global war on terrorism, to get to back to that awful epithet. Huh? That's not what it's about. What it's about is capacity building and theater security cooperation with African partners who want to cooperate with us, and also linked up with our key allies, particularly the British and the French, who have a lot of equities when it comes to African security assistance and cooperation. So I think it can be done right, but it, so far it's been done rather poorly, and politically there's been a backlash to it. I hope we can get beyond that, and that it will become uh, something which, uh, where we have a soft landing and we have some cooperation. 
Uh, right now, there's some African leaders that are having a, a, a contest as to who can be the first to reject locating Africa Command in their space, while others are saying, please, please come to our place. So it's a little bit messy. But I think these are early days, and I hope it's a better story going forward. It would probably help if the Pentagon didn't require the commander to be called a combatant commander. Yeah. Yeah, that too. After all, CENTCOM's in Tampa, isn't that right? Yeah. Now, why do we have to have Africa Command in Liberia or in Nigeria or in Kenya? Or, or start with the word combatant. Because or combatant. this is not about fighting wars. I think it's about a, avoiding the turmoil that leads to wars. One more point on this. I, the way this has been rolled out creates so many expectations and fears that it actually has been counterproductive. Um, I think there are a lot of folks who are hoping that Africa Command might mean lots of money. And I'm not sure that it does, so <laughs> we better not get that wrong. But I, I'll just say, the, the, the entire budget for what we spend in Africa is less than the price of one F-16. You know, it strikes me that we could do better than what we're doing. Yeah, yeah. Right down here in the third row, please. Thank you. I'm Bob Berg. I'm an advisor of the World Federation of United Nations Associations, but I have a non-UN question. Uh, <laughs> tell us uh, how you see uh, the restoration of strong bilateral relations with key uh, friends and, and BRICs around the world, uh, bilateral uh, commissions and other kinds of things that maybe aren't in vogue now and where you see roles for those broader relations. Very, it's a very good question. I, I, I think that um, that's the ultimate building block, really. I mean, when you start doing something as a new administration, assuming the new administration is smart and wants to do smart statecraft and all these good things. You know, <coughs> you can't talk to Asia. You can't talk to Europe. You can't talk to Africa. You have to talk to individual European governments. There may be a European foreign minister emerging, but I still suspect that the first instinct will be to talk to France, talk to Britain, talk to Germany, talk to a few others, rather than talking to Brussels but maybe that's coming. In any event, you're absolutely right. I mean, the key should be on bilateral relations. Bilateral relations are the starting place in any kind of smart power. Uh, but it can't just be one country. It's got to be a broad-based uh, broad exercise. Um, I would like to see us spend as much as three, four, five months actually doing internal reviews of the kind that I talked about here and sharing the results of those interim reviews with key allies before we get into the first six months. But not just on send mode, but on receive mode, to see if we're right, that we know where they would like us to engage. I have no doubt, having just participated in an exercise in the Middle East where we took a, a Georgetown authored document, it was a report on what the next administration should do, and, and sending it out to a group of non-Americans to ask for their feedback, I have no doubt that our friends and partners internationally are craving creative American leadership. They're not wishing us to disappear or go home. They get very nervous if we say to ourselves and others, we're never going to do another Iraq. We're never going to use military power again. They get damn nervous when they hear that because they know there might be conditions in which it would make some sense, whatever you think about Iraq. So these kinds of things, I think, need uh, some sense of context. We have friends and allies out there. They want us. They want American leadership. And they want to be listened to. 
Don Oberdorf. Right. Microphone's coming, Don. Well, thank you. Since my name was taken in vain, I figured I had to ask a question. Um, Go for it, Don. Chet mentioned sustained statecraft. If there was ever an ideal of being sustained, it was Chet Crocker in the State Department. I used to come and see him. He was dealing with Africa. Everybody else was going off into some new idea. But Chet just kept at it, just kept at it with the same basic premises, as I understood it anyway, working on Africa while everybody else was flitting around other parts of the world. And I think the sustained part of this is very important. Uh, the United States is not a great country for sustaining things. Mm -hmm. We tend to get distracted quite relatively easily as a nation. But it's terribly important to be consistent in a sense. And of course that goes back to what we do at home. You can't have a consistent foreign policy unless you have a consistent domestic under platform, a domestic understanding for that foreign policy. And I think we're a long way from any kind of consensus. I'm concerned that we all think, all right, there's going to be an election next November, and then that's going to settle everything. A new administration is going to come in, and it's going to have a consistent foreign policy, and we'll be able to get out of some of the holes that we've been in that we need to dig ourselves out of. But I don't think that's going to happen so easily, because when the next administration comes in, the domestic uh, landscape for that administration is not going to be tremendously different. It, Yes, there'll be six months or so of, of a honeymoon, but it's going to take a lot of, not just thinking, a lot of persuasion somehow to get Americans on the same, uh, on the same tack, basically, to do the, the consistent, the sustained part that Chet mentioned. I frankly don't know how to do it, but I think it's... It, it's extremely important, and that's basically what I wanted to say. That's not a question, it's a comment, but I... I yeah, no. <laughs> I, I might just put one point of interpretation on it, which is that the kind of sustainment that you're making those kind remarks about, um, uh, Don, is in part the function of having an administration in office for eight years and having a good deal of continuity at cabinet level having a president capable of providing air cover for his lieutenants and a secretary of state determined to stick with his lieutenants and provide air cover, especially when the going gets rough. So, you know, that it's, it's actually about people. Part of what you're talking about is really about people. And, and do they, are they there for the long haul or not? But I think you're absolutely right when you ask the question about where are the American people and what lessons will be drawn from recent experience and how do we uh, stitch together some kind of a some kind of a consensus that could lead to, uh, to sustainment. It's a real challenge. Yeah, uh, Hello, my name is Jim Malloy. I'm a, a visiting fellow from the State Department. Um, my, my question is more from, an, I guess, an implementation perspective than, uh, than broad policy. But, and I should mention, before I joined State, I was in the military. And of course, in the military, there's been tremendous progress made in terms of, of jointness. And I think having had one foot in both worlds, you see, uh, you know, kind of a cultural disconnect between state and DOD uh, that often manifests itself in, you know, in, in other areas in policy. And 
wondering if you think there are, are some institutional things that would need could take place that would um, instill jointness between the executive branch, particularly state and DOD. And that's a good question, and it's it's one that uh, the Europe Smart Power Commission actually talked about and addressed uh, quite quite directly, as have other things it done here at CSIS. The Defense Department, of course, excels at doing jointness. The state Defense Department has learned about joint operations and joint planning and inter-service coordination. And so it learned the hard way, but learned. And so it's part of the culture now. The DOD's capacity for planning and, and, and actually implementing its plans is spectacular. It's really very good. And, and, and it's not surprising that state is sort of left in the dust when it comes to planning for joint operations. The second point I'd make is that it w the State Department was never set up to do operations in zones of conflict. That's not state's role, traditionally, historically. It's not meant to be conducting programs in zones of conflict overseas. It's meant to be doing diplomacy. And traditionally, that's the way it's been designed. So it's facing wholly new challenges now about how to develop at least some operational capacity. And the, the issue of coming up with people who can serve in PRTs is a perfect perfect case in point for that. Uh, the question that I raised in my, in my remarks was whether or not it is up to the State Department to run power plants. You know, or, or how, do, how do we figure out how to do that? How do we connect? How does the civilian side of our entire government connect? And it's not just state, obviously. It's, it's AID. The Agency for International Development used to have thousands and thousands and thousands of people out there who could do some of these things. Today, AID has less than a thousand full-time direct hires. You know, most of it's contracted. So these are fundamental questions of strategy. How much should be done by the executive branch? How much should be done with, with, within which agency of the executive branch? To what extent is state capable, even if it doesn't do sewers and power plants, to what extent is state capable of overseeing this civilian side and therefore linking up with defense? I think that that culture of jointness needs to be worked on. It is being worked on, but it's taking a long time. One perfect example, and then I'll stop because I'm going on too long here. I was recently talking to somebody who does contracting at state. And there are exactly five people who are capable of negotiating, signing, and implementing contracts in the State Department. Five. Can you imagine what would happen in DOD if there were only five people who could do contracts? <laughs> <laughs> and three of the five in state are in Iraq. That means there's two contract officers left for the rest of the world who can negotiate and sign contracts. I mean, that's, that's incredible. There are people in this room who know a lot more about this than I do, but I think some of these capabilities have to be enhanced. But can I, uh, forgive Please. me, colleagues, but I would like to take that question and put a sharper point to it, Jeff, and that is um, the reason the reason DOD does very good operational planning is it has these operational combatant commands. Mm -hmm. And I would argue one of the reasons they're able to do good operational planning is because they're not in Washington. If you do an operational plan in Washington, it becomes political. Yeah. It becomes the subject of a great contest between the parties, etc. I think one of the key questions that uh, Jim's question points to is this question, the operational level of command in the State Department is in Washington. Mm -hmm. It was an assistant secretary. Mm 
you were an assistant secretary. Can we do this kind of operational planning in a Washington environment that is so much caught up in the gladiatorial aspects of governing now? Or, and if we don't have a regional structure like the way the combatant commands have, how does the State Department compete when it has to be here in Washington to do this? The State Department doesn't have any trouble competing when it comes to the planning and implementation of a diplomatic initiative. I've seen it, I've done it, I've seen others do it, it can be done. I mean, you know, that's the reality. If, if what you're talking about is like Chris Hill's negotiation on North Korea, that can be done by a Washington-based agency like State. Obviously, he had to work hard to keep various contending factions and voices in Washington under control. He had to go upstairs and get air cover repeatedly from Condi. And she had to get air cover from the president to, to stick with this uh, program on North Korea. Um, but ultimately, it worked. And I think, it I think Chris Hill proves that it can still be done. Mm -hmm. um, but that's a diplomatic negotiating operation, if you like. I think it's very, what you're talking about is very different. You're talking about organizing reconstruction and development initiatives on the ground in some province in Iraq. Can that be done in Washington? Probably shouldn't be done in Washington. Is that uh, my answer? Yeah, but I, so th th we've, we've got to find some way. I mean, the State Department has its this oper this theater-wide operational capability, but in Washington, and other than that, it's a nation-by-nation -nation structure. And yet, you have regional problems that yeah. need to be done on a regional basis, and we don't have a structure in the State Department to handle that. Good regional bureaus do. Good regional. There, we just have the answer. We just need to bring Chet Crocker back <laughs> into government. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, let's thank Chet for a really <laughs> very stimulating <laughs> Thank you.